Good evening, everybody, and good to see you in person and also those on, online. We will uh, commence our evening service with the singing of hymn number 412. 412, no other plea, and we'll stand to sing. Let us now pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this opportunity we have to come and worship, worship thee in this, the first day of the week. It reminds us that thou art a risen Christ, thou hast conquered Satan, sin, and death. We thank thee, Lord, for the victory we have in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt uh, focus our minds again on thy word, we thank thee for the truth of thy word. We thank thee it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank thee that we come to worship a sovereign God who is in control of all things. And as we see a world uh, becoming more chaotic and ungodly and wicked and sinful, we thank thee that we come to one who is pure, who is holy, 
who is uh, without sin. We thank thee that God manifested himself in the flesh in Christ Jesus, our Savior. We thank thee we come to a creator of God, one who sustains his creation. And so we give thee our praise tonight, Lord, as we sing unto thee. Help us to even think on the words that we sing, Lord, uh, that we can uh, enter into them, even, even into the spirit of the authors of the hymns, Lord, that we may give thee all of our heart. Lord, help us, even as we were reminded this morning, to be wholly sold unto thee, Lord, wholly uh, convinced of, of thy word and also for the direction that thou hast given us each in our lives. Help us each to know, Lord, that we are in the center of thy will. Lord, give us uh, we have a message to give to a dying world. We pray, Lord, that thou will help us each this week to uh, witness to some poor soul that comes across our path. Give us the words, Lord. We know that we have uh, the evil one that would, would, would uh, trip us up and, would, Lord, the flesh would fail. But we pray, Lord, that thou would give us the boldness to declare thy word. Be with thy servant tonight that's in our midst. To many of us, he is new. This is the first time, Lord. We pray that thou will just, Lord, uh, bring, give him liberty in the preaching of thy word. We realize, Lord, that uh, we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, and we pray, Lord, that thou wilt undertake. We thank thee for traveling mercies for thy servant uh, that brought him safely here. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt continue with him as he would turn back to Ulster and to resume his studies in the ministry. And so we pray also, Lord, for those that are not able to be with us, Again, remember the sick and, the, and those that are uh, grieving the loss of loved ones. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt uh, be very close to them. They, each one may know thy comfort and thy leading and guiding in their lives. We thank thee that thou art one that sticketh closer than any brother. And we pray, Lord, that thou would just minister unto them. Be with our own pastor at this time, Lord. Give him and his wife uh, a good time with their family. And Lord, return them safely this week to this work. And we pray, Lord, again, for the, as we would commence, recommence the various ministries in September, especially our school and our Sunday school, Lord, that I would undertake. And Lord, touch hearts and bring in those that need to be schooled, uh, Lord, both in our day school and in our Sunday school. And Lord, be with the various meetings of this week. Be with our brother, Alec, as he would take the prayer meeting, Lord, and with also the Friday night with Brother Gallagher, Lord, and the, and the seminar, we pray that thou would undertake in all these, that thy name may be glorified and lifted up in our midst. Be with us now as we continue on, and give thee, help us to give thee all the glory and all the praise we ask it in his wonderful name. Amen. Turn also now to hymn number 402. Those that are online, of course, most of you can just look behind us here. But for those that still use the hymn book, 402, uh, "Tis Heaven There," and we'll sing all four, uh, all three verses on the stanza. We'll stand to sing.
may be seated. I'll just bring the announcements at this stage. Um, I think you already are familiar with most of them. Just remember that after our service tonight, we will have a fellowship uh, downstairs. I think most of you are familiar with that, but we do encourage you to fellowship with us downstairs if at all possible. And um, uh, uh, Mr. Eccles has requested that uh, after the final hymn, that if you hold your positions, he would like to take a photograph for evidence that he was here and that you were here. And um, so you have permission to do that, brother. Um, just you have to be quick and, and be sure, because some people will steal away maybe downstairs. So um, be prepared for that. If it, and um, um, on that subject, I'm just going to turn the announcement around. It's, it's good to have met Jonathan Eccles for the first time. And uh, for many of us, it is the first time. So he has been visiting our churches. He's been set on to come out here basically for, what, six weeks? Nine and a half weeks. So he really was set on upon uh, by our pastor. So he's been serving a good few weeks of that in the B.C. So he has been out in Cloverdale, Penticton, uh, Prince George. And then uh, he couldn't... Uh, uh, you know, uh, miss Calgary, so I think uh, he's seen the Rockies, so he's, uh, he, 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 I think he took some surface transportation to see the Rockies, and uh, you can ask him afterwards all about that, his experience. So this is his first trip outside the UK, and so he's really uh, seen a lot of Canada and a lot of our works. And he's also, I almost forgot he preached in Barrie this morning. So we nearly got all of our churches. So I think maybe the next time we'll uh, get him for the other churches, maybe next year. So all being well uh, in the Lord's will. So it's good to have you here, Jonathan. And I'm sort of uh, putting this in the front because I wanted to tell us uh, some of these details. So we're looking forward to uh, the, the message that the Lord has given you for us tonight. Now, there are uh, other remaining meetings during the week. Our Wednesday night prayer meeting, as usual, at 7.25. Our Bible study and prayer with uh, Brother Alex Newell will uh, bring the message, and uh, please remember that and try to be uh, here uh, in person as much as possible. Uh, we do appreciate those that join online as well, especially for those that join from a considerable distance. And remember also on Friday, there's two items. Uh, first of all, the Sunday School Seminar at, se at 7 o'clock on Friday. And our brother Ian Gallagher, it's nice to see him back and his wife. And so we're going to be pressed into service with the, uh, uh, a seminar on the Sunday School. So that's for all current staff and those that are interested uh, in this vital ministry of our Sunday School. So that's at 7 p.m. and also... At the same time, uh, there's the gym fellowship, which has been ongoing during the summertime at 7 o'clock, and so please remember that. And in the will of the Lord, next Sunday, our pastor will be uh, back in the pulpit here uh, for morning and evening. And um, also, we have uh, a visitor in our midst, Sam Houston. So uh, some of us know of Sam's uh, 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 history with us, and to some of you, he's new. And so, uh, Sam has, uh, we're glad to, to have him here. He's been here for some weeks now, 
visiting his son and his grandchildren. And, um, and so we had fellowship with him last week uh, up in Berry. It was very sweet fellowship and renewing uh, times of fellowship with him and uh, telling stories and singing and all the rest of that. So it was good. And so, uh, but there's a tinge of sadness there that Sam uh, is by himself. His dear wife passed away two and a half years ago. And we would certainly, from this church, from this pulpit, give our condolences to Sam and understand at this time that uh, it's only for a season and we'll all meet together again in glory one day. So we appreciate Sam being here. But also, he is, we are in for a little treat, so he's going to come and sing for us two pieces uh, very shortly. Uh, as soon as I sit down and keep quiet, then he can come up and sing. And then immediately after that, our brother then will, uh, will bring the word to us. And so, and just finally, before I do sit down, uh, just remember our brother Reggie Cranston, uh, as you can appreciate, our brother James Fraser uh, has not been present with us because he's had to step in again to bring the word in, 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 uh, in the Port Hope, um, so for both morning and evening service. So remember Reggie this time, the Lord will give him strength, and I think he's due for a little break shortly, and maybe a little longer break to renew his strength, and so just remember that in your prayers. So without further ado, Sam, you're on, and may the Lord bless you and give you strength. And then right after that, brother, you're good to go. Thank you. Before I sing, dear friends, I want to say a very sincere thank you for remembering my family and Betty is in heaven. She's living there for all eternity. And if you're saved, we're going to join her. And what a great day that's going to be. Now, believe it or not, to those who know me, I've become a man of quite few words. Uh, That's different from what it used to be. But anyway, I appreciate Mrs. McClellan praying for me, playing, praying for me too, and playing. And uh, I really appreciate it. A brother mentioned something about, about uh, rock. And a fellow was asked the question, he was speaking to this Christian man, and he said, do you believe in rock and roll? He says, oh, I, he says, I believe in rock and roll, he says. He says, my feet, he says, are on the rock, and my name is on the roll. Wasn't that good? I'll say nothing more, sister. We're ready for the first one. Thank you. I will live my life for Jesus, and a tree stands alone. my life for Jesus. I will serve him day by day. He is my Lord and he's my Savior. He 
is God the only way. He shed his blood to wash and cleanse you. He paid a debt you could not pay. Ask him now to truly save you. He will take all your sins away. Live your life and always serve him. Pray that others do the same. And at the end of this life's journey, heaven will be your great gain. He shed his blood to wash and cleanse you. He paid a debt you could not pay. Ask him now to truly save you. He will take all your sins away. What a glorious hope we'll have then with our Savior and our Lord. And we will praise the King forever, knowing he's our great reward. He shed his blood to wash and cleanse you. He paid a debt you could not pay. Ask him now to truly save you. He will take all your sins away. A tree stands alone upon Calvary's hill as a witness in ages to come of darkness, despair, and of one who must die, the Savior, the Almighty Son. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul with nails through his hands and a wound in his side with a crown made of thorns on his head no hatred he bore for the peace 
dear father, he said, the light on the earth faded quickly away as an army of clouds hid the sun. The wind beat the air and the rain lashed the ground in anger at what had been stars which look down over Bethlehem and saw glory shine down from above now sadly reflect on the folly of men and a sacrifice born of true love it is well with my soul it is well it is well I just take the opportunity to thank Mr. Houston for those um, pieces in song. I think I speak for us all when I say that they were a blessing to our hearts. And it's always good to be led to Christ, uh, whether we sing, whether we preach, whether we pray, whatever we do to be led to him. Can I also thank your pastor, the Reverend Saunders, for the opportunity to come to Toronto and to minister God's word uh, to you. And can I thank the congregation for your warm words of welcome. I've been here around an hour and I felt very welcome in your congregation among you. So thank you very much. Uh, this is the last preaching engagement I have in Canada. As our brother said, I've been here for around nine weeks and I fly home on Wednesday uh, to Belfast. So do pray for me as I make the journey home. I'm flying with British Airways and over the last year they've been very unreliable. So I don't know where I could end up. I'm just hoping that I end up at some stage before next Sunday in Belfast. So pray that I end up in Belfast. If I get there, I can get sorted after that. And indeed, it is a privilege to be here among you. And we look to the Lord for his blessing and his presence as we gather around his word. We'll turn in God's word, please, to the book of 1 Thessalonians and the chapter 1. 
First Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll commence our reading at the verse number 1. First Thessalonians, chapter 1, commencing at the verse number 1. And God's Word says there, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word to all of our hearts for his glory. We will seek the Lord's face in prayer as we come to consider his word. We will ask him for his help and his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of the word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do confess the weakness of the flesh now. We do confess, Lord, the weariness of the flesh. We do confess, O Heavenly Father, that we have a great need of God's help. And therefore, Lord, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit upon the preaching of the Word of God tonight. We pray, Father, that God's name will be glorified. We pray that through the preaching the name of Jesus Christ will be lifted up and exalted. O Heavenly Father, come and speak to each and every one of our hearts. We pray for a word in season. We pray for a time of refreshing. Remember those, Lord, who aren't saved. O Lord, that tonight as they are confronted with the person of Jesus Christ, Lord, that they will see their great need of salvation, that they will come and repent and believe the gospel. Lord, come and visit this place tonight by the power of thy Spirit. We pray in our Saviour's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Years ago, the government of China commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor with the purpose of distorting the facts about his life and ruining his reputation and presenting him in a bad light. 
And what they essentially wanted to do was they essentially wanted to rewrite history with the aim of discrediting this man who was a consecrated missionary of the gospel. And there was an author who was assigned to do the research. And as this author was doing the research, he was greatly impressed uh, by Taylor's saintly character and godly life. And he found, it he found it extremely difficult to carry out his assigned task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of losing his life, he laid aside his pen and he refused the character assassinate Hudson Taylor because he discovered that this was a good man. It is also said that he renounced the atheism and he received Jesus Christ as his personal savior. Hudson Taylor's godly life and reputation made an impression on this individual, and it is the same in general life. Our personal reputation or the reputation of institutions and groups of people can really make an impression on others, whether good or bad. As we glance through the first chapter of the book of Thessalonians, we encounter an institution, and people within that institution, the Thessalonian church, and they had a good reputation. And as a result, they made an impact on the world, and it made a great impression with many people. And this is particularly highlighted in verses 8 to 10 of the chapter. If you glance at them there with me, please. It says, Therefore from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And it's with these verses in mind that we want to note some of the characteristics which, made this, uh, which caused this church to have such a good reputation in the ancient world. And therefore, I want you to consider with me this evening this topic of a church with a model reputation. A church with a model reputation. I want you to see firstly their gospel-spreading reputation, because Paul says in verse 8, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, and commentators, they have suggested that even before Timothy returned to Paul with his report from Thessalonica, news had already reached Paul about the church down the Great Ignatian Way. Now, the Great Ignatian Way was the main east-west corridor of the Roman Empire that ran straight through the city. And in Acts 8, 18 and verses 1 and 2, we read, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. So Paul, he had met with traveling Christians such as Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, who had brought him reports from the wider world. And through these avenues, even before Timothy had returned to Thessalonica, Paul heard of the gospel-spreading nature of the Thessalonian church. He said in verse 8, In every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. Paul says that the church sounded out the word of the Lord. And this testifies that they were a witness who heralded the name of Christ around the world at the time. 
The phrase sounded out. In the Greek, it can refer to a loud, unmistakable proclamation. And thus, Paul compares their sounding forth of the word with a trumpet blast, which calls people to attention. These were not sugar-coated words coming from the Thessalonian church, from the people, from the preachers. These were not soft words. These were strong words. These were words which could be heard. These were words which called people to attention. They were distinctive words. They were as a trumpet blast. And having received the gospel, the Thessalonian church, they had no intention of keeping this message to themselves. But by word and by life, they sounded forth this message to others. I don't know if the phrase positive gossip is an oxymoron, but we have an example here of positive gossip. People are talking about this place. People are talking about this church. They are talking about these people, but it is all good. They are talking about them spreading the gospel. And Paul's praise for this witness, it completes his threefold description in this chapter of how the gospel spread to northern Greece. It came through the apostles' preaching. In verse 5 of the chapter, we read that it came to the Thessalonians in word, and that it came through sound biblical teaching. And then we read in verse 6 that they received the word. The Holy Spirit worked, and they received the word with gladness. And now in verse 8, having received the word, they, they now heralded forth the same message to others. This is the pattern through which God intends to spread the gospel in the church and through every Christian. The church and the believers within the church are the vessel through which God spreads His word throughout the nations. And therefore, believers in Christ, we ought to be a church who are outward-looking. We ought not to be a church who are inward-looking and closed in within ourselves, because it is very easy to get comfortable. Quite often, churches become stable financially. They have a solid attendance every single week. The preaching is good. And then there is a danger that we can get comfortable. And we focus on things which aren't important. And because of this, the evangelism suffers and the outreach of the church suffers. But we must never get comfortable. We must never think that we are a church which is on the, on the defense. Yes, society is getting darker and attacks on the church are increasing. We can see that every day. But we are, as a universal body, a church which is growing day by day as God saves those for whom Christ died. And therefore, we should act like a body which is on the advance by going out and by never resting until we have reached as many as possible with the message of the gospel. We we ought not to be inward. We ought not to appear like a body that is defeated because we are not. The Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when Christ made that statement, he was at a place which had a reputation for supposedly being the gateway to the underworld. So he went to the gate of the enemy and he said, I will build my church. He knew the attacks would come. He knew people would attack the church. He knew people would attack believers. Yet he went straight to the gate. 
and said, I will build my church. What was he telling us? He was telling us we are a church who are going forward continually day by day until we are the perfected bridegroom or the bride of Christ. And the Thessalonian witness, it wasn't just any witness. It was the word of God that they received and it was the word of God that they spread. They had the very word of God in their possession. They believed that this was a supernatural message. They believed that this was a special message. And this is what empowered their witness. And through this message, they even saw themselves supernatural events in the salvation of souls. And when Paul refers here to the word of the Lord, he is referring also to the Lord Jesus And he's telling us that any true apostolic witness of the Word of God will center on the biblical testimony of Christ and God's Son, the one who is the Savior of the world through the blood of His cross. That's what the Thessalonian message centered on. It centered on Christ. It centered on His cross. And as word spread through Greece and beyond about the Thessalonian witness, And the news told not only of their God-revealed message, but also of their faith in it. When Paul says that the gospel sounded forth from them, he adds, your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. This reputation for God, for their faith in God, it likely began at home among their families. As believers in Thessalonica were saved, husbands would have been astonished at the change and the lives of their wives who were now converted to Christ. Friends and neighbors probably noticed a change in their friends and their neighbors, a change in priorities, a change in conduct as they embraced the gospel. So profound was the change among so many people in Thessalonica that a significant event, sorry, that it spread around the ancient world, that there was a significant event happening in this city. This was especially evident when the Christians would not abandon their faith, even in the midst of persecution. But what did they do? They responded to persecution with a steadfast hope and a steadfast joy, which came from the Holy Spirit. By their lives and by their conduct, they not only displayed the power of the gospel, but they made the message that they proclaimed legitimate and credible. This was their reputation that they were a faithful people. This is their gospel-spreading reputation, but I want you to see also with me their God-serving reputation. The Thessalonians had received a reputation of being a God-serving church. Paul says in verse 9, if you glance at it there, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. One commentator has described uh, this verse as the fullest account of Christian conversion in the New Testament, turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. Their conversion, it began with the manner in which they received the Word of God, and this largely testifies to the spiritual state of a church. How churches receive sound teaching will ultimately determine the the impact that they have on the world. A church's perception of God's truth and and God's Word ultimately determines a church's destiny. 
and what direction that church will go. Because all churches will have an impact on people in some way. Their view of God's Word will determine how they will impact people. On the one hand, you will have a church which has a low view of God's Word and a low view on the need to continually preach it. They will place emphasis on other things. And they will give people a great social experience, but they will give them very little spiritually. And then on the other hand, you have a church which has a high view of God's Word. And the people there will grow. They will show the fruit of the Spirit. They will know their God well. And they will lead souls to Christ. And the Thessalonian church, they had a high view of God's Word. And this was their experience. It determined the impact that they had on their community. And what was that impact? It was that they won people to Jesus Christ. And they grew in their faith. No matter what was thrown at them, they remained steadfast. And as Paul preached to them, many of them were converted to Christ. And verse 9, it sets forth in clear language what this conversion entailed, as I've said, turning from idols to God. They realized that becoming a Christian would involve a radical break from their former life. Many of these people had been converted from idolatry and from uh, Judaism as well. They realized that they could not place Christ alongside their former uh, idols and alongside their former lives. They realized that conversion to Christ, it involved a revolution of their worship, of their service, of their conduct, a revolution of their whole life. And in making reference to God as the true and living God, Paul is merely pointing out that the idols they once served are dead, false deities who neither possess life nor are the givers of life, whereas God is the giver of life. And Paul's statement regarding their, their rejection of idols is particularly poignant when we recognize that Mount Olympus, the supposed home of the Greek gods, was visible from the city of Thessalonica. It was around 50 miles away from the city. And they could see that mount. And quite often the idol worshippers in the city, they would have often looked to that mount for help and for comfort. The Thessalonian rejections of idols was not only a necessity in Christian conversion, but it was also a part of the deliverance that Christ had achieved in their salvation. Because believing the gospel and embracing Jesus Christ it involves a change of the will, a change of the will from trusting, worshiping, and serving false gods to a new faith in Christ. We must claim the lordship of Christ. We must put ourselves under his blood, trust the Spirit's power, and claim God's fatherly protection for our salvation. As one great preacher once said, it is impossible for a man to have a true and genuine encounter with Jesus Christ and remain unchanged. Because the message of the gospel, it is a radical message. I've heard many preachers and they almost call their people to bring Christ on as an addition to their lives. They say, well, you can have this, you can have this, you can have this, but you can have Christ. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus Christ, He doesn't just want a part of your life. He doesn't just want your Sunday. Your Sunday morning, your Sunday evening, your Wednesday night prayer meeting. Jesus Christ wants your whole life. 
And if you are to truly know him, then it must involve a radical change. It must involve a putting away of sin and a turning to him for salvation. And along with rejecting former things, conversion to Christ also involves the step of submitting to a life of serving God. Christ is, is the only Savior, but he is, also, he is not only the Savior, but he is also the Lord and Master. And he calls us to be servants of him and to consecrate ourselves wholly to him. He says in Luke 9 and 23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The living God not only gives life, but he commands life. He calls us into service. Having rejected idols, believers, we are now to trust, to worship, and to serve God above all others. The great Protestant reformer, John Calvin, he once wrote, No one, therefore, is properly converted to God, but the man who has learned to place himself wholly under subjection to him. And this is a solemn statement. This is a really solemn statement because if we don't place ourselves under subjection, under subjection to God and His Word in all areas of our life, then we are living in rebellion to God. And Calvin essentially says there that there is reasonable doubt to an individual's proper conversion. It's a fearful thought. And when we don't submit to God in certain areas of life, we have, submitted to something, we have submitted to something else, and this is idolatry. Yet, believer, we have been saved from idolatry. We are like the church in Thessalonica. We have been saved from idolatry. We have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. And therefore, believer, we ought to examine our lives tonight all of us, and we ought to ask ourselves, is there an area in our lives where we are not totally submitted to God and totally submitted to God's Word? Is there an area where we exist in total disobedience to the statutes of Scripture and of God? Believer, we must put away our idols. As the great Puritan once said, we must kill our sin, or our sin will kill us. It will finish us. If we leave one area of our life unchecked, it will fester and it will spread until we make a mess of our lives. These are the effects of sin. We can't underestimate the power of sin. We are still in the flesh. We still battle with sin. We need the Lord and we need His grace. And we need to seek forgiveness and submit to God. Otherwise we fall and we will never be content. The man or woman who has a new heart, who has a regenerate heart, they only find contentment in life by obeying God's Word and serving Him. Anything else is a deceit. And this is their God-serving reputation, but I want you to see also with me their Christ-awaiting reputation, because the third characteristic of the reputation of this church is there awaiting Jesus Christ and his return. Because Paul concludes in this first chapter in verse 10 by saying that they turned to God in order to wait for his Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. The Greek word that Paul uses for wait appears only here in the New Testament, and it conveys the idea of patient expectation and trust. And the Thessalonian church, they were fully convinced that Jesus Christ would soon come and that he would bring the fullness of the salvation for which they longed. And they waited on Christ with patient expectation and trust. And their waiting, it had a passive component in that they were not relying on themselves for this salvation, for the salvation that they waited for. They were not relying on their gospel spreading. They were not relying on their fruitfulness. They were, they were trusting wholly in the Lord Jesus, who was the author and the finisher of their faith. He was the one who began this good work, and they expected that he was the one who was going to come and complete this good work one day. They did not know the exact timing, but they had their eye on the horizon. They were waiting for Christ to come in power and in glory. They used to look to the mountains where they thought their gods dwelled, but now they realize their folly, and they look beyond the mountains, they look above the mountains. They look more eagerly towards the mountains for something more glorious, and that is the coming of the Son of Man in power and in glory. What a change God has wrought in the lives of these people. And brethren and sisters, we must also live in this world and serve the Lord with this mindset that Jesus is coming again. He is one day going to return. And therefore, we should not get too comfortable in the world. And we should ask ourselves, are the things that we are living for, are they worth it? When we stand before God, will these ambitions we have in life, will the things that we are living for now, will they be worth it? If Christ came back now, could you say that what you are living for at this time is worth it? Is it worth it in light of that great day of His appearing? Friends, we shouldn't lay our roots too deep here. For as the hymn writer said, this world is not our home. We are strangers and we are pilgrims in this world. Scripture says of Abraham in Hebrews 11 and 10, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And Abraham, he lived his life with the view that he wasn't always going to be here, and that one day he was going to heaven. The Thessalonians lived their lives with a similar view, that Christ was coming again. And as a result, they redeemed the time. I believe that this was one of the key reasons that their service for God in this world, in the ancient world, was so effective, because they did it with the view that Christ could come at any time. They did it with the view that they could be in heaven at any time. They did it with such zeal and urgency, because they didn't want to waste any time. And that's why they proclaimed the Word of God. That's why they proclaim the message of the gospel as a trumpet blast. And many Christians, sadly, they would feel a sense of disappointment if Christ were to come very soon because they are so comfortable here and they are enjoying their life on this earth too much. They perhaps don't want Christ to come yet. 
They might want them to come in 10 years when they've had a chance to live life, or, or 20 years, or they might want to live a full life before they see Him. And what a shame that we would ever get into that mindset. Believer in Christ, I think if we lived each day with a real sense of Christ's return, we would all live very differently. Our service would be more fervent. Our service would be more urgent. It would be more loving. It would be more zealous. I feel that in my own life. May God really impress upon our heart that He is coming again. May God drive home the reality in our hearts that He is coming and help us to live accordingly. It's a solemn thought, but when He comes, souls will be damned forever in hell. And therefore, we must tell them. We must live for Him and tell as many about this glorious message of the gospel as we can. An unsafe person, I want to ask you tonight, are you ready for His return? Are you anticipating His return? Because if you're not, then you need to. Because if He returns and you are not saved, although it will be a glorious day for His church, it will not be a glorious day for you. Because on that day, you will be condemned to eternal hell for your sin. And I take no joy in telling you that. But I tell you that because I desire that you escape the wrath which is to come. And you get ready for His coming by trusting Him for the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of your soul. What an awful day that will be for the unconverted. All get ready. We've said that the Thessalonians waiting on Christ's return had a passive component. But at the same time, Paul's description of waiting, it has an active component. Because while they were anticipating his return, they should ready themselves to greet him. The great commentator William Hendrickson, he writes, When you await a visitor, you have prepared everything for his coming. So also awaiting the very Son of God who is coming out of the heaven implies a sanctified heart and life. Thus we are not only waiting for the coming of heaven to earth, but we are waiting for Jesus himself. And Jesus, he spoke this way to his disciples before he went to the cross, because he said in John 14 and 3, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And our Savior, he emphasized that the heaven for which we wait, it is bound up in his person. The heaven for which we wait is bound up in the person of Christ. And our hope for heaven is fixed on the one who comes, not merely to take us to heaven, but to take us to be with him in glory. When I say that we are waiting for his return, our waiting for our eternal rest as a church is tied up in Christ. I also mean that we not only hope for the completion of that work of salvation, but our hope lies in the fact that we will physically be with Jesus Christ. We will be with the one whom the soul loves. We will be with the one who is the object of our love and our worship. We will physically be in His immediate presence. And this is the ultimate hope that we have as believers and that we have for Christ's return. 
that we will enjoy unhindered and perfect fellowship with him for all of eternity. Friends, if we were to go to heaven and die, yet Christ wasn't there physically, we would be disappointed, wouldn't we? I desire, and I'm sure you all desire, to see your family in heaven. I hope to go to heaven one day and see them. But friends, I desire to see Christ first because he is the center of heaven. Where Christ is, that's heaven. And we sang that earlier. We said, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. On land or sea, what matters where? Where Jesus is, tis heaven there. Friends, to be with him for all eternity. The streets of gold will be glorious. All of the things that we read in the Scriptures concerning heaven, when we experience them, they will be glorious. But they are a mere afterthought compared to the glory of fellowship with Christ. That is our hope for eternity. That is our hope for His return to be with Him. We will see Him. Do you ever remember the day that you saw something wonderful or something mind-blowing? I know that since I've been in Canada, I've seen many sights which have been wonderful and which have been mind-blowing. Have you ever had an incredible experience and an incredible feeling in life? But as time went on, the novelty wore off and you grew accustomed to it. It won't be like that when we see Christ. Those feelings of joy, that feeling of awe, that wonder, that delight, that outpouring of love, those emotions which are indescribable, they will never wear off. They will not be a novelty, so to speak. Those indescribable emotions we feel when we first see him, they will last for all of eternity. Oh, what a hope. And Paul, he goes on to cite a good reason for Christians to believe in the return of Christ. The world denies that Christ will return, but Paul gives us good reason to believe that he will return. He speaks in verse 10 of God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. The Christian hope of Christ's return, it would really be a preposterous hope were it not joined to the doctrine of his resurrection. Because if the Father promised to raise his Son and then fulfilled what is, humanly speaking, the most unlikely pledge, yet he fulfilled it, then God's promise to send Jesus Christ is equally worth being believed and trusted. What Paul is saying is, the world said that a man could never be raised from the dead, yet it happened. The world says that a man could, that Christ could never return from heaven, but it will happen. Why? Because we have seen God's power. He raised him from the dead. We trusted God, we believed God, and therefore we ought to believe God that he will return one day. And moreover, if we believe that Jesus Christ is God the Son, in possession of full deity, then in his sovereign omnipotence or having unlimited power, he is able to return from heaven and bring salvation to us, his people, forever. We believe the word of God and its testimony. And to go with this reason to believe, Paul adds a reason for us to hope in Christ's return with great joy and expectation, saying that we wait for Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Our Savior's first coming, it had the aim of redeeming us from our sins by his blood. It had the aim of 
redeeming the entirety of creation through his redemption. Yet his second coming, it completes this salvation. It completes this um, redemption by actually delivering us from the power and the curse of sin and by, uh, from everything that is cursed by sin. He died on the cross to remove the guilt and the curse of sin from his people. And God's wrath, it is not a sinful outburst of anger that we see in the world today, but rather it is his right, it is his just and his holy and his burning resolve to punish all evil. And apart from God's wrath, God would be unworthy of our worship since he would then be a deity who tolerated evil and tolerated sin against his sovereign rights. That's why he is the true and living God, because he is a God of wrath. All of the false gods in the world, what do they require for salvation? They require good works, and they don't punish sin. And that tells us that they are false gods. The God of Islam, the God of Roman Catholicism, they are false. They don't punish sin. Good works will get you to heaven, but with the God of Scripture, sin must be punished. And the Scriptures tell us He poured out His divine wrath upon Jesus Christ for His people. He bore the wrath of God. And trusting in Christ, we can face our judge without fear, because He has paid the penalty for our sins by bearing them on the cross and delivering us from that wrath which is to come. With nothing to fear from God's judgment and everything to gain, believers, we can look forward to his return with a conquering hope, for he will give us the victory. We are more than conquerors. I said earlier, we are a church on the advance. The scriptures tell us in Titus 2 and 13, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Believer, I think this is a good note to finish on. Are awaiting the Lord Jesus Christ's return. It will be a wonderful day. It will be a glorious day for us. And we should await it with expectation. But until then, may we be like the church in Thessalonica. While we wait his coming, may, we, may the Lord make us like these believers. May the Lord make us a gospel spreading, a God-serving, and a Christ-awaiting people. May he also give us, as a church, as a denomination, this reputation, these characteristics that we serve God that we wait for Christ, that we spread the gospel. God give us the grace to live out the Thessalonian, the Thessalonian example in our lives. And may God bless his word to all of our hearts tonight for his glory. Amen. Amen. We'll sing another hymn now. And it's the hymn number 183. Hymn number 183. Our Lord is now rejected and by the world disowned. Hymn number 183, and we'll stand as we worship the Lord together, please.
again. We'll seek the Lord's face in prayer as we bring our service to a close, please. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful tonight for the truths of Scripture. Lord, we're thankful for the Scriptures which do reveal to us God, which reveal to us how we can know God, for the Scriptures which reveal to us how we can know His Son. Lord, we're thankful for the truths which tell us that He will come again and that He will present us as a spotless, glorious bride before His Father. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will see Thee face to face. Lord, our prayer tonight is that everyone gathered in this service, that they will be with Him on that day. Lord, we pray that Thou will visit with salvation. We pray, Lord, that Thou will impress the truths of Scripture upon the hearts of us, thy people. Father, we look to thee. Bless us as we make our way home or we stay for fellowship. Heavenly Father, we pray for thy blessing upon us. And now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen.